The Gospel of the Lord from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And when the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And some for the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe. Help me believe. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. The word of the Lord. Someone noticed that there is no ink spot on Sundays on our calendars as we go through the season of Lent. And the answer is because in the Christian tradition, uh, Sundays are resurrection days. Sunday, every Sunday is, is Easter. And so we don't celebrate Lent on Sundays, which is terrible news for those of you that gave up Chick-fil-A for Lent because it's closed and you're out of luck. I want to talk for a minute about failure as we open this sermon. I was in the ninth grade and I lived about 12 blocks from my high school. And my friend Scott and I uh, decided after school to go to my house. And so we were going to go play video games, hang out, have some fun. And it was on the way there that we decided, okay, let's just run. Let's just get this walk over with um, so we can get to the house quicker. And so uh, they were pretty long blocks and I, I began to run with Scott. Scott was a year older than I was and he was in quite a bit better shape. And so I was running trying to keep up with his pace, which was probably a little bit too fast for me. And after about a block... Uh, my side started to hurt, and I said, Scott, we got to slow down. Let's walk for a minute. And Scott said, okay. And so we walk for about half a block, and he says, are you ready? And I said, okay. And we start running again, and sure enough, about a block down the way, the same thing happens. 
I begin to hurt. I got a stitch in my side. I say, Scott, Scott, you got to slow down, man. We let's walk. And so we kind of did this run a block, walk a block, block, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And then about halfway home, he turns to me and he says something that has stuck with me the rest of my life. And it wasn't until much later that I was learning how to run uh, that this came back to me. He said, you know, you don't have to stop just because it hurts, right? Let's talk for a minute about failure. I, uh, I went to the Bronx for one summer to join a church planning team that was in the process of planning a church in New York City. It was a team that had just landed, and uh, there was no church to speak of. There was one couple whom they had found that would come up and take the fourth-story walk-up to have church in one of the uh, team members' apartments. But I was the intern, and it was my job to kind of help this uh, team start, but they didn't have anything for me to do. And so what I was given was the task of setting up a, a table, a folding table, on the corner of Pelham Parkway and the two-train, and simply try to talk to people about Jesus. And it was just after 9-11, and so we had made these booklets that um, kind of had some theological reflection about 9-11 about because we thought that might be a touch point between New Yorkers and a place for an opportunity uh, to talk. And, uh, and I thought, okay, well, this is something I can do. I don't know if you've ever gone to Sam's Club or to Costco, and you, you go by those little kiosks that have things to share, things to eat. Um, you might go by there because you want a snack. And if you're like me, you have to feel like you're obligated to feign some interest in the food that you're eating to the person that's there. Mmm, pimento cheese. I've, um, that's pretty good. And you walk away. <laughs> I'll think about getting some in a minute, okay? You walk away. I got to tell you the truth. The people who live in the Bronx have no need at all to pretend like they're interested and a guy standing on the corner trying to hand out booklets about how God feels about 9-11. For weeks, I stood on that corner. I eventually had more success when I just bought a five-gallon uh, igloo container and just filled it full of lemonade. Because if somebody was hot and they wanted something to drink, at least I took the time to fill it up that I could say two sentences to them before I handed it to them and off they went. I spent two months standing on that street corner with not one person that ever walked up those four flights of stairs to the apartment for church. Fast forward a few years. In my first real ministry job, and a friend who was about five, ten years older than me was having trouble in his marriage. And I knew the answers. I knew what to do. I knew the right thing to say. So I sat him down to set him straight, and that marriage failed. And I think we may have all had that experience at one time or another. You try to do something in the name of God, try to help someone or tell them about Jesus. You're, you're moved to pray for a friend and just have it all fall flat on its face. And we find ourselves like two parents of a, of a child who threw a birthday party and not one other kid showed up. And you're scrambling for answers, your emotional and spiritual solves to kind of cover up the hurt. The truth is, is that sometimes there are going to be failures. 
And sometimes there are going to be disappointments in your experience with God. It's not always going to go the way we planned. And you're not going to feel very successful. What we do here at this church in our ministries and our mission efforts, the way that we are trying to restore Highland and this city and this world, how do we gauge our success? Is it the number of seats in the seats? Is it the size of our building? Is it the number of consecutive years that we've hit our budget? Or is there something else? Uh, you know, I think uh, in the story of Mark, Jesus is coming right off of the transfiguration. He's coming down from a mountain. If you have your Bible, you can open it up and see the stories that happened in uh, Mark right before this story. And it was a, a mountaintop experience. It was probably the most powerful moment in, in Jesus' ministry. He's standing there on the mountain. There appears a Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to one another. And, and Peter and his friends are up there too. And they're coming off of the mountain. And immediately he encounters arguing disciples and an evil spirit. This isn't a surprise for Jesus. This has happened before. You remember at the beginning of Mark, he goes off to pray and be with his father. And while he's in the wilderness, he faces temptation. But immediately coming off of resisting the evil one, he comes into his ministry. And the first thing he experiences is the exorcism of a demon. Scribes and the disciples are arguing and a father cuts through. The father is desperate. This is his last-ditch effort to save his son. He says, if you can, take pity on us and help us. And in the back of our heads, I want to keep the refrain of what happened last week, the sermon that we looked at about the twice-healed man. Jesus puts his hands on a man's eyes. He kind of can see, but not very clearly. Then Jesus heals him again. The disciples can't quite pull it off, this exorcism. And Jesus seems harsh. He seems almost annoyed. The desperate father looking for a chance to save his son, hoping against hope, if you can. Jesus responds, everything is possible for one who believes. It looks like this boy has epilepsy. The demons, exorcism, demons, possession was a catch-all term in the first century. The priests who uh, functioned also as doctors couldn't tell the difference between mental or physical or spiritual illness. They just knew something was wrong. And so don't get too hung up in the story trying to figure out what a 21st century medical diagnosis would be. All that we know is that Jesus is able to help this boy. And so he rebukes the spirit the same way he rebuked the storm. And let me tell you what this story does not teach us. This story does not teach us that with just enough faith, you can cure epilepsy. Nor does it say that if you live a life of faith, that nothing bad will happen to you, or that you can just cure yourself if you just pray hard enough. The man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. What kind of half faith is this anyway? Matthew and Luke, which were probably written after Mark, and many scholars believe used Mark as a source as they were writing their own Gospels, they, they chose to remit those words from this story. The man doesn't say, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Jeff Edwards notes that it only took about 20 years for the people of God to try to reduce faith to an either-or position, to try to smooth out that complicated middle nuance. Either you believe or you don't, there's no middle ground. 20 years in, the institution had already created sharper boundaries. But maybe it's because the gospel of Mark is associated with Peter that this line makes it in. It was Peter who understood ministry failure. It was Peter who needed to be forgiven so much. It was Peter who knew that sometimes, in some moments in life, faith can be pretty complicated. I mean, the disciples who had left everything that they had, they believed. They trusted that Jesus was who he said he was and that God was calling them. And then they demonstrated their lack of faith time and time and time again. And that's our story, too. That's our baptism story. My guess is is that you had no idea what you were getting into when you committed your life to Christ. And when you met Christ in the waters, when you found God in baptism, and that story began, you had no idea what was going to happen. I was baptized when I was 16 years old in uh, a baptistry at the University Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. And our youth group at the time was meeting on Tuesday nights, not on Wednesday nights, uh, for some reason. But, and I don't know what happened, that, that Bible study that I was in. I walked into that Bible study, normal as I had for almost every uh, time that church was open, because that's the way my parents raised us. It was just a normal Tuesday night. But somehow through the course of that time and through the course of that study, by the end of the hour, all I could do was stare at the carpet because I knew that something big had happened in my life and I didn't understand what it was. But the only answer, the only solution was to give my life to God. And so as people are after the Bible study, they're milling around and talking to each other. I I, I try to find my youth minister, Tim, and I say, it needs to be tonight. I need to be baptized. And I don't know how it happened, but this is the kind of church that I grew up in, a kind of church that has learned to love the young people that are there. Because in about 20 minutes, 40 adults from all over the city of Denver had come to our church to see me get baptized. And Tim and I were up in this high baptistry in the water, and I gave my life to Christ, and I came up, and then it was, it was over. And at the church that we were in, there was a tradition that after uh, baptism, we'd gather up in the front of the church and we'd sing songs and we'd pray over the newly baptized person. And so they were all kind of waiting for me as I was drying my hair and, and getting changed back into clothes. But as I was walking down the stairs of the baptistry, I had this moment. It was such a powerful moment that it knocked me back. I was sitting on the step that I would never be able to keep the commitment that I had just made. I would never be able to follow Christ in the way that Christ had called me to. And sitting on the steps of that narrow hallway, I wept. It got a little uncomfortable. Tim comes walking up the stairs to see what's happened. And he sees me and he says, what's wrong? I say, I can't, I'll never be enough. I can't do this. He looked me in the eye and he said, Shane, welcome to grace. I had no idea 
what my baptism story would entail on that Tuesday night when I gave myself to God. Faith is not, let me say that a different way, doubt is not the opposite of faith. I have met a few people in my life who have claimed that they have the kind of faith that has never wavered or questioned once. And when I encounter these people, I think one of three things. One, I think they're lying to me because I'm a pastor and they feel like that's the answer you've got to tell a pastor. Or they're lying to themselves. Or the third option, which I sincerely hope is the truth, that they have some sort of supernatural level of faith, some sort of gifting from the Spirit, which I believe does happen. And, and in that case, I am just envious of them. Most of us haven't spent too long partnering with God, seeking to participate in the work of the kingdom of God without being disappointed in God or disappointed in ourselves that it didn't go the way that we wanted it to. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, but I am kind of convinced that certainty is. Pete Enns, he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. And he writes that when we encounter skepticism in our life, it's not the loss of belief, but as the opportunity to deepen religious conviction with courage and confidence. This is not just the intellectual uh, conviction. This isn't just agreeing to a set of doctrinal decrees, he contends, but a more powerful kind of knowing that is only true faith can provide. And so when you encounter that cynicism, when you encounter that skepticism, when you encounter that kind of doubt and failure, it's not the end of your faith. It's God inviting you to something deeper. Pete tells the story that he lost his bearings watching a Disney movie on a plane of all places. He had, been, he had gone through seminary and earned a PhD. He had gone back to teach in that same seminary. He was a writer and he ended up getting fired. The next few years were the most frightening and faith-developing of his life. The reason I say that certainty may be the opposite of faith is because certainty is sometimes holding on to something other than your own experience with God. I was a Boy Scout when I was in... Uh, middle school and early high school. And we would go every uh, summer to Camp Alexander. It was in the, the Colorado mountains. And I, I've never really been a very good swimmer. And one of the things that they made you do at the beginning of camp was to see what kind of swim category you could be in. One that they only let you in the three deep, uh, three foot deep part of the pool. The other that lets you into the full pool, the 12 feet deep in. And I would just kind of skip this thing every year because I wasn't going into the pool no matter what anyway. I had other stuff I wanted to do. But one of our uh, assistant scoutmasters, he was the parent of one of our friends. He said, he decided for whatever reason, this year everybody's qualifying for the blue level, the deep level of the pool. No choices. And so there I am standing in this three foot uh, deep water on the shallow end of the pool, knowing that the requirement is I have to swim to the other end of this pool and get back. And there's no way that I'm going to do this. So I did with the safe bet. I stood right next to the wall because that way, if I start swimming and I can't get very far, I can just grab onto the wall and I'll be okay. But this assistant scoutmaster, for whatever reason, he grabbed that pool cleaning pole and he began to pace me. And I was swimming along in this pool 
And I got to the point where I didn't think I could swim anymore. And so my hand went out to grab the edge of the pool so I could stop. And he took that stick and just bumped my hand away. I was the worst qualified blue level swimmer at Camp Alexander that year. And I think sometimes that's what certainty is. It's trying to hold on to that wall in the pool. When you encounter doubt, when you encounter hard questions, when you encounter airtight atheist arguments, or you witness a degree of suffering and tragedy in this world you didn't know existed, it is a call to give up hanging on to the wall and see what is on the other side of the pool. Jesus tells the disciples, this is the only... This kind of demon can only be solved by prayer. Who prays in this story? Jesus doesn't pray. The disciples don't pray, but the Father does. In fact, look at your text. Everything that he says, every word that he utters, it's all he does. Look at everything he says. It is only prayer. And there is a complicated nature to prayer that I'm going to confess to you that I don't understand. How can thousands of Christians earnestly beseech God for the same thing? And it doesn't work out. But I love the Father in this story because he is experiencing this complicated bag of hope and worry, faith and doubt, courage and fear. This Father is remarkably human and it is beautiful and it is transcendent. The boy looks dead. After the spirit leaves him. But Jesus extends his hand. And raises him up. It's this. It's this mini resurrection. In the book of Mark. In some ways this story is a foreshadow. To the end of Mark. In a few short weeks. We will witness Jesus' own troubled spirit. And how it's going to throw him to the ground. Where he will pray for deliverance. But that deliverance will not come. But on the third day, God will raise him from the dead. It's like the blind man we saw last week. This healing comes in two parts, addressing the physical malady, but then there's something more. And there's an experience in our lives where our ministry failures are being redeemed. Because I learned from that walk home from school with my friend Scott that there's a difference between being hurt and being injured. And running with a stitch is the only way that we learn to run farther. And standing on that street in New York, I learned that the way that people roll their eyes at me doesn't really bother me. And I also learned there are real limits to our ability to affect others. And sometimes the only and best thing you can do is be a listening ear and to pray. Because sometimes some problems are only solved with prayer. Because we need to remember that our God does a lot with a few loaves and fishes. And that a mustard seed can become a great thing. And that one death, a death on the cross, really can change the world. Even if all that God has to work with are a bunch of failures and a bunch of half face, I believe he can restore Highland. He can restore our city, and he can restore our world. So let's see what happens when we take our doubt in one hand and our faith in the other, and we're willing to risk failure 
Let's just see what God does with that faithfulness. Will you please stand for a benediction? In this season of Lent, please remember that from dust you came and one day dust you will return. But in the middle is something glorious, something transcended in what it means to be a human. And carry that mixed bag that you have with you this week and leave it as an offering to someone else. Because who knows what God can do with just a little bit of prayer. Go in peace.